you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me this evening, you can turn back open to the passage that was read earlier to Colossians chapter 4. And uh, we, uh, we actually read verses 2 through 6 earlier. But just so you know where I'm headed, I'm, I'm going to focus on verses 5 and 6 this evening. And uh, um, we may make brief reference to the ones in front of it, but we're going to spend most of our time in just those two verses. And in, in these two verses, verses 5 and 6, Paul, Paul gives us very basic directions about how to cultivate a distinctively Christian identity, and at the very same time, how to succeed in genuine relationships with people outside the church, people who don't consider themselves as Christians. And while these instructions are, are quite brief, there's, there, again, there are only two verses, they are also the last instructions or the last exhortations that Paul gives in this letter to the church in Colossae. It's as if Paul is saying, it's time for me to say goodbye and I'm going to leave you with parting words. These are right before his, his uh, goodbyes, where he lists people he's saying goodbye to. And it's as if he was saying, you know, it's time for me to say goodbye, but, goodbye, but before I do, I want to tell you one more thing, and don't forget it. So by the very location of these verses, it should alert to us that these are important, very important to Paul, and they're essential to the success of the life of this young church in the first century. One commentator says this, Paul's thought has come full circle. Beginning in, in chapter 1, with a report of his thankful prayer for the Colossians, and then of his work for the gospel at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, he's ended with the request that they should pray as he prays, and work as he works. Their prayer and life, like his, are to be expressions of the loving wisdom of God, reaching out in Christ to save the world. Now, again, you might ask, why would he end the letter with these kinds of instructions as opposed to, say, something else? And I think the answer is that Paul understood the challenges facing this young church and that their success as a community, as a believing, gospel-centered church were bound up with their growing ability to live wisely in the midst of the daily ebb and flow of Colossian culture and commerce. For example, in the first century, Christians were often viewed as atheists, unpatriotic, and immoral. They were often viewed as atheists because they refused to worship gods that you could see. If in the first century, if you refused to worship the gods of the Greek or Roman pantheon, you were considered an atheist. And Christians didn't believe that you could see the God they worshipped. They believed he was invisible. And they therefore were considered atheists. They were also considered unpatriotic because they refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor. And they were even thought to be immoral because often out of necessity they had to meet behind closed doors and that created suspicion. And that created question about what was going on behind those closed doors. And therefore... They were viewed often as immoral. And the church today is in a very similar position, though the perceptions of the church are quite different. Today the church is often viewed as intolerant 
because of its ethics or exclusive because of its belief in Jesus as the only way to God and even anti-intellectual because of its measured appreciation of science. In other words, like the early church, we are faced with various attitudes and perceptions of people outside the church. Some are quite accurate, and quite frankly, they need to be heard, while others are not, and they need to be challenged. So here's the question I think Paul is getting us to think about, and it's very basic. But how will you respond to those perceptions, to those attitudes in the course of your daily life, in the course of the relationships with people that you have who are not Christians, who would say, you know, I'm, I'm not there. I can't buy it. I think there are basically two ways the church tends to answer that. How will we respond? One is to isolate ourselves from those perceptions and those questions and those views. Whereas the other one is to assimilate to those perceptions and those views and to perhaps alter what the Bible teaches to be more amenable to trends and ideals and currents of the day. Let me give you an example of what this might look like. For, for some Christian people, some, some Christian people have lots of non-Christian friends And they know them very well, and they spend lots of time together, but they almost never talk about issues of faith and belief or religion or God. On the other hand, there are some Christian people who are very ready to identify as Christians and are very concerned that you know where they stand. You might call these, these are the the, the bumper sticker ones. You know, they have bumper stickers. They want you to know where they are on various issues and where they line up. And yet, they don't have very many friends, if any at all, who are outside the church. And Paul's vision for, the, for Christian people is a commitment to both. That you would have deep, ongoing, daily relationships with people outside the church and that you would identify as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, in the midst of those relationships. So Paul here, he's charting a course for us that neither leads towards the direction of isolation or assimilation, but rather he uses this phrase, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And in doing that, he gives you three basic instructions for doing this. He says that we need to be timely, We need to be compelling, and we need to be flexible. And this is all a fruit of wisdom. And yet that raises a question of, well, what what kind of wisdom do we need? And so what does Paul, what's he referring to when he says, walk in wisdom? I think it's safe to say that wisdom is is undervalued in our culture, even in, in the church. I think we tend to be far more concerned with moral absolutes what is right and what is wrong. However, according to the Bible, wisdom is as important for a life of faith as knowing what the rules are. And in fact, knowing what the rules are requires wisdom to know how to use those rules, how to live in light of those rules, that God's law, in fact, requires wisdom, and they go together. So 
no matter what you think the rules are, they don't cover the vast majority of the decisions that you face on a daily basis. So, for example, should you switch jobs? Who should you marry? Where should you live? How should you spend your money? How should you spend your time? How should you teach and discipline and instruct your children? The Bible just simply doesn't tell you how to do that in every detail. That requires wisdom. So then, what exactly is wisdom? Let me give you perhaps a couple ways of thinking about this. Gerhard von Rad, he's a, a Bible scholar, and his book, Wisdom in Israel, defines wisdom this way. He says, wisdom is becoming competent with regard to the realities of life. Wisdom is becoming competent with regard to the realities of life. And what would that mean? That means at least three things. That we need to know how things really work. How does the world really work? How do things really happen? But then we also need to know how things really are. We need to be realistic. It requires discernment. It requires being able to see fine distinctions about how things really are in the world. In other words, not having the wool pulled over on your eyes, but being able to see clearly as things really are. And then lastly, you need to know what to do about it. Or as Sinclair Ferguson in my, one of my favorite books, and yes, it is a children's book, <laughs> it's called Jesus Teaches Us How to Be Wise. He says that wisdom is knowing how to get things to work for the best. See, the wisdom that Paul speaks of in chapter 4 here, in, in verse 5, when he says, walk in wisdom, it's rooted to what he has to say earlier in chapter 1. It's this wisdom that would make you competent with regard to the realities of life. Look, if you have a Bible, turn back with me to chapter 1. Look at verse 9 and 10. This is a prayer. I'll read it to you. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In these verses, Paul he's, he's t- tells us he's heard about the faith of the Colossians. He's heard about how the gospel has taken root in their lives. And therefore, because God has broken in, that these people have responded to the good news about Jesus Christ, he has not stopped praying for them. That they would know God's will. And that they would grow in this spiritual wisdom and understanding. Notice, first of all, that this... This true knowledge of God, it, it produces spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the kind of wisdom Paul has in view here. It is a wisdom and understanding that leads to faithful and fruitful living, which in turn then deepens our knowledge of God. It is no abstract and theoretical knowledge disconnected from the realities of life. Rather, Paul is praying for a deep experiential knowledge of God that possesses the whole soul and has a comprehensive shaping influence in every part of your life. In other words, Paul is praying for a knowledge that by grace can make you competent 
with regard to the realities of this life. And the second thing I want you to notice is that in this prayer from chapter 1, that this spiritual wisdom and understanding, it's a gift. Paul says, he prays that you would be filled with it. In other words, he's not doing the filling. You are not going to fill yourself. This is not a wisdom that you can just go buy. You can't go get it. It's a gift. In fact, it's better even to say that it is spiritual for sure, but even better would be to say it's spirit-wrought wisdom and understanding. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This is His job, is to make you wise. So that when you read the Bible, or you hear the Bible preached, there is a supernatural work of God going on where the Spirit Himself fills you with the knowledge of God's will, not just in abstract truths and doctrines and theology, beautiful as those things are, but that you would live by them. That you would have wisdom and understanding to navigate life. That you would live a life pleasing to God that bears fruit in every good work. You see, here's the challenge for us. You can know theology, you can know the Ten Commandments, you can even know that Jesus died for your sin, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are wise. Which is precisely why Paul has not stopped praying that this would be true of this church in Colossae. And I think we can take the same for us. That the Lord Jesus has ensured that this is part of his word. That we would never stop praying that God would make this true of us. So what then is is the connection between these verses in chapter 1 with our passage tonight? And I think the connection is found in the goal of Paul's prayer for spiritual wisdom and understanding. And it's the goal that we would bear fruit in every good work. And that fruit in every good work, in our case, for our passage tonight, is with respect to your relationships with people outside the church. You see, what Paul is saying to us tonight, walking in wisdom towards outsiders is not, let's say, a a side hobby of the Christian. It's not uh, something different than the normal Christian life of bearing good fruit, of living a life pleasing to him. It's connected with this spiritual wisdom and understanding that you need to breathe as a Christian. Therefore, when Paul writes this very terse but pregnant phrase of walk in wisdom towards outsiders, it serves as almost, it's it's like a a hyperlink to take you back to chapter 1. To anchor you in this gift of spiritual wisdom that the Spirit is committed to bringing about in your life. So, But before we look at these basic instructions that Paul says is the fruit of this wisdom that you were called to walk in, I want us to think for a moment about what does he mean by this word outsiders? Unfortunately, I think there is a great deal of confusion about this in our day. I think there's a great deal of confusion about what that word means, both for people inside the church as well as outside. See, here's what makes a person... This is, this is what a, an outsider is not. What makes a person an outsider is not their politics, their morality, their money, 
their sexuality, their failures, their successes, their race, their ethnicity, or their nationality, or anything else you can come up with. (laughs) What makes a person an outsider is their unwillingness to see themselves as God sees them, which includes basically two things. That they are in desperate need of God's forgiveness. And second, that God's gracious provision for this great need is only found in Jesus Christ. That and that alone is what makes a person an outsider to the church. Now, therefore, we also, by implication, need to ask, well, what makes a person an insider? Let me start similarly. An insider isn't, someone who's an insider isn't defined by their sexuality or their morality or their religiosity or their service or their politics or their well-behaved children, or their holiness, or their generosity, or their self-sacrifice. You see, the only thing that makes a person an insider is is their acceptance of God's verdict on them as rebellious sinners without hope in the world and their acceptance of God's gracious provision for them in Jesus Christ. Received by faith alone. It is fundamentally important that as Christian people we get that right. Because the reason is there are far too many people outside of this church who think they are outsiders because of their politics or their failures or their sexuality or any of the other things I mentioned. And that is not what makes them an outsider. You see, here is, in this one word, Paul is insisting that the only thing that really distinguishes outsiders from insiders is how you answer the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? This is a question of first importance for us. And not just for people on the inside, but also for people on the outside. For the insider... It reminds you who you really are, that you are a sinner saved by grace. For the outsider, it requires you to be honest about who you are. That you are a sinner in need of grace. So then, what does Paul, what does it look like to live wisely toward outsiders? Let's look at these three basic instructions that Paul gives for living wisely. And ironically, and I think helpfully, these instructions are not unique to living wisely towards your friends and neighbors who are outside the church. These are true for almost any relationship, but particularly so for friends and neighbors outside the church. And I think he he answers for us basically three, three very challenging questions that I think all of us face. What do I say? How do I say it? And when do I say it? In other words, Paul is teaching us to be timely, compelling, and flexible. So first, let's look at this idea of what it means to be timely. Look in verse 5. Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. See, the verb here translated making the best use is taken from the marketplace. It has the meaning to redeem or to buy up. 
every opportunity to exhaust the possibilities available. One commentator expressed it, the sense of this phrase, as snapping up every opportunity that comes. And you're going to laugh at this maybe, but I can't help but think of Donald Trump and him walking around Manhattan like buying up all of these really expensive pieces of real estate. he's, He's phenomenal at that. And I can't right now remember the show that he had on TV that I used to watch where you could see his personality walk around. He he would never pass up an opportunity that he thought he could buy up. And what's striking about this, the use of words in this this passage is its it's open-handedness with resources in order to acquire something worth having. It's not stingy or lazy, but it's discerning and proactive. Therefore, here's what I think Paul is teaching us. Time is precious. In fact, time is a gift from God. And He alone is the Lord of history. See, we often say things like, I need to manage my time better. I think it's always worth reminding ourselves that there really is no such thing as my time over which I can claim exclusive rights. None of us is promised life beyond today. Like every gift from God, time is to be used to enjoy God, to glorify Him, and to serve our neighbors. So when He instructs us to make the best use of the time, to snap up every opportunity that comes, it's really a call to self-sacrifice. It's a call to put others' interests before your own. It means giving people outside the church your best time. It means taking them seriously and not dismissing them. It means treating them as if they are more valuable than your time. It means praying for wisdom to know when to speak and when not to. It means friends and neighbors, co-workers and family members outside the church are never to be an afterthought. So we're to be timely. The second instruction Paul gives refers to our speech. And he tells us that we need to speak in a compelling, tactful way. He says... Let your conversation always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Notice first, Paul is not only speaking to the content of what we say when he says, let your conversation be gracious, but also how you say it, the manner in which you speak. For the content, think of it like this. Our speech is to be good news speech. It's not good advice or self-help or chicken soup for the soul. It is good news about God and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. In other words, gracious speech is fundamentally reorienting to a person's life. Gracious speech, good news speech, takes a person's eyes off of themselves and their self-salvation strategies and fixes them on Jesus as their only hope in life and in death. But at the same time, our good news speech should demonstrate the grace that you've received. We're to speak the truth in love. But here's the, here's the thing. I have people tell me that all the time. We are called to speak the truth in love. Yes, you are. But brothers and sisters, I must tell you that to speak the truth without love is not truth. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So Paul calls us to have gracious, good news speech. But secondly, he goes on to describe how to use that speech in your conversations. And he he says it should be like seasoning. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Think for a moment with me about how salt functions as a seasoning. It, It draws out flavor, and it even adds flavor. But it's never the main course of a meal. (laughs) Too much salt will ruin an otherwise very good dish. Not only is it a seasoning, it functions as a preservative, and it can lengthen the life of food. And so when we apply this metaphor to our speech, it means that our speech should function like seasoning in a recipe. Even the least bit of wrong seasoning can ruin a good meal. But the right seasoning creates a desire for more. Therefore, gracious speech requires wisdom to know what not to say, every bit as much as what to say. And our speech should also have a preservative influence, both for the conversations that we have, but also for the relationship in which those conversations are taking place. Here's what I think Paul is saying, and I think it is this strong, that our speech should never lead to the breakdown of the conversation or relationship. And I think there's a principle that Paul actually articulates in Romans chapter 12 to back that up. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you. Now, Paul is not therefore suggesting that if you do what he says here, that every conversation and every relationship you have will go well. The good news of Christianity is not always seen as good news. Nor is Paul suggesting that if you are an outsider, that the good news of Christianity will always sound good to you. And in fact, it might outrage you. One writer has said this, when we engage with God in Christ and take seriously what he asks of us, we will always find our sinful dreams and desires challenged and confronted. There will no doubt be conversations and relationships in which matters of faith are discussed, and the good news claims of Christianity will be utterly repugnant and upsetting to friends and neighbors outside the church. That should not surprise you if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus. Just think about your own life. Are there not times when you don't want to read the Bible because you're afraid of what you might find there? Have you ever been afraid that God might do something in your life that you don't want Him to do? Or read something that angers you and upsets you And if that's the case, you have an awful lot of common ground with a lot of people who are not here tonight. It is often the case that the good news of Jesus Christ is very upsetting 
And you need to be ready for that. You need to be able to take that and absorb that. However, even though sometimes this good news is not received well, what steps can you take to grow in this compelling, tactful, gracious speech seasoned with salt? Let me give you some, hopefully some, some directives here. First, and most fundamental, remember that you are a sinner saved by grace. And therefore, you have no basis for looking down on other people, regardless of their beliefs or practices. Secondly, you need to learn to listen carefully to people's hopes and dreams, their fears and their anxieties, their aspirations and their ambitions. And you need to take the time to understand why those things matter. Why are those friends and neighbors building their lives on those hopes and dreams? The better you can articulate that and understand that and enter into that with them, the better equipped and ready you will be to speak good news words to them. But third, you need to cultivate what writer Wesley Hill calls a story-shaped life. You see, simply telling people theology or doctrine, divorced from its place in the overall story of Scripture, it removes the compelling force of what God has done in history through Jesus Christ. It reduces Christianity to a set of beliefs and practices that, quite frankly, sound ridiculous and arbitrary to people outside the church. So how do you do this? How do you cultivate the story-shaped life? First, think about your own journey to faith. Think about the scriptures or the events or the people or the conversations God has used in your life to open your eyes to see and believe in him. Do you have a sense of a narrative of how God has worked in your life. How he has laid hold of your heart and given you hope and a future in Jesus. And then secondly, try to step back from that narrative of your own life and place it within the broad scope of Scripture. We might be able to describe it like this. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And then think about, like, ask yourself some some questions like this to help you put your own story in light of this grand sweep of God's history of redemption. Ask yourself, what does this story teach me about God, what he has made, and my place and purpose in his creation? Ask yourself, what does this story teach me about what is wrong with me and the world in which I live? What does this story teach you about God's justice and his grace? His commitment to rescue you from yourself and reconcile you to himself through Jesus Christ? What does this story teach you about the future and what God will do through Jesus Christ to make all sad things come untrue? You see, a story-shaped life, according to Scripture provides a framework for talking about all of life's great questions and struggles. Like, who am I? What's my purpose? Why am I here? Why are things so screwed up? What is wrong with me? 
Where can I find peace, love, and acceptance? Where can I be truly loved and fully known? What does it mean to be truly human? Where am I headed? Is there a future worth living for? All of that is found in the scriptures. From beginning to end, God has spoken about all of those things. You have at your disposal a story that reaches into every person's life who has ever walked the face of this earth. See, a story-shaped life, it enables you to be flexible and prepared at the same time. It enables you to enter into a person's life at various points with various questions using various parts of God's story of salvation. It enables you to be prepared and flexible at the same time, which brings us to the third instruction, the need to be flexible. Look in verse, the end of verse 6, he says, so that you may know how to answer each person. And notice that this third instruction is actually the result of the first two, of being timely and being compelling. Enables you to be flexible. See, he is assuming here that Christian people are regularly involved in conversation about faith issues with people outside the church. Evangelism was never meant to be an isolated activity of the church relegated to a program or a priority for the bold and courageous who are those rare individuals who just don't care what other people think about them. It was never meant to be that. See, Paul assumes and expects people will ask you and want to know why you believe in Jesus as a normal part of your daily life. Or as Peter puts it, people will want to know a reason for the hope that you have. And what will you say? Do you have a reason for the hope that you have? If someone asked you tonight, on the way home, why are you a Christian? What would you say? How would you say that? What would you point to? This is not optional. And in fact... I'm making it sound like it's this huge burden, but if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and you have discovered His grace and has broken in on your life and your sins are forgiven, you have new life in Him and a hope in the future with Him forever where everything will be made right again, how can you not have an answer to that? What is the reason for the hope that you have? You have one. If you're not sure what it is, get busy and find it. Because it is found in the Lord Jesus who has suffered and died and has risen from the dead and now lives and reigns in heaven for you. You have a hope. Can you talk about it? See, the tendency is, in Christian circles, to come up with a single gospel presentation that can be used in virtually every situation with all people. There is great value, there is no doubt great value, in thinking through a basic gospel outline that you can remember and easily communicate to someone else. But the purpose of that is not to create a one-size-fits-all way of talking to people. That's why Paul here says, 
each person. Everything in this passage leans against any such idea of thinking there is a one-size-fits-all way to do ministry. See, the purpose of being ready, of thinking through a story of Scripture, so that it becomes a part of you is to make you flexible, creative, and compelling when asked about Christian belief and practice. One, one commentator says this, Not only must a Christian's conversation be opportune as regards the time, it must also be appropriate as regards the person. Everyone is to be treated as an end in himself and not subjected to a stock harangue. This is why Paul begins with the instruction to walk in wisdom. He's not giving us a formula for every person or situation. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He is stressing the Christian responsibility to respect and honor each person and to diligently work to understand each person's questions and to season conversation with grace-filled truth. Now, to say that we need to be flexible doesn't mean to be wishy-washy or just give people what they want to hear. Rather, it's giving people the Bible's answers to the questions they are asking with a force they can feel and a clarity they can see, even if they don't agree. Even if they don't agree. Now, I have to, I have to confess, uh, my, all, my entire job is about this passage. <laughs> okay? This, the, entire, the church is about this passage. And the demands of this passage are great. Paul uses words like best, always, each. He says, make the best use of the time. Always speak with grace. Know how to answer each person. Now, when I look at what Paul calls us to in these verses, I have to admit, I am not very good at any of these. I see a failure of selfishness and folly and self-centeredness and failure just trailing behind me when I read this passage. I'm confronted with my own self-concern and my lack of courage, my lack of love for people who I believe, if I do believe the gospel, need to hear about Jesus. Because there is a day when the Lord God will call everyone to account. I am confronted here with, quite frankly, my callousness to my neighbor. And I wonder how this passage confronts you. But I want you to remember, as high as the demands are of this passage, as profound a thing as it is to walk in wisdom, remember where we began. We began talking about how this spiritual wisdom and understanding is a gift from God. And in fact, later in chapter 2, Paul tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. In fact, it is Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. In other words, to grow in wisdom means communing with the Lord Jesus by faith. 
To walk in wisdom is synonymous with walking by faith in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus. Now here's the thing. I don't, and you don't, only need the gift of this wisdom. You need the one who is wisdom. You need Jesus to give you what only he can give you. You need to ask him to make you like him. Did you know Jesus was very timely, he was very compelling, and he was very flexible. If you want to test this for yourself, go through the Gospels. Make a list of every encounter and conversation Jesus has. And try to figure out, is there any one of those conversations that are exactly the same? Ask yourself, how did Jesus use time in this conversation? How was he compelling In what ways was he flexible with these different kinds of people? It is astounding to see Jesus do these things Paul is calling you to do. But not only are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ, so too is all the forgiveness and freedom you need to cover and conquer the guilt and power of sin in your life that keeps you from growing in wisdom towards your outsiders, towards your friends and neighbors who are not believers in Jesus. You see, it is this good news that will make you different. It's this good news that will enable you to grow in wisdom towards outsiders, to be timely, to be compelling, to be flexible, Jesus was that way towards you. And he is that way still. And all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you and I need are found in him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the things of which you speak in this passage would become realities in our lives. That we would become competent with regard to the realities of life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray that you would make us lovers of our friends and neighbors, that we would walk wisely towards them and with them, for them. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.